Good morning. We're going to be reading from uh, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of his wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that he has called you, you who are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father God, I really do hope that our hearts are enlightened. Um, just like Paul talks about here, Lord, and I just pray that we, we come to realize the hope that we do have, especially kind of coming into Easter and um, not just what you did for us on, on the cross and, and what that meant for my sins, but what it means for our future, Lord, and the, the, what we get to experience in eternity with you. And you being the ruler of all things and all things being made new. Um, just be with Stacy as he brings this word to us uh, today. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's important, I think, uh, to put a frame on this passage, make sure we get it clear, and then from there we can make sure that it, it has the right kind of impact on us. So, like I said, to put a frame on it, for clarity's sake, this is a prayer. Paul uh, lets us know, he lets the Ephesian Christians know how he's praying for them. It's, it's interesting, there's another one in chapter 3, but if you just take this one in its entirety, um, step back and get this perspective. This is a prayer that an apostle prays for this group of believers. He is called by God to minister among them. Paul makes sacrifices. He's in prison at the time that he writes this letter. He's really talented. Um, he's really smart. He's the expert. He's the reigning foreign missionary MVP. And yet, in spite of all that, Paul prays. So all this talent with God's call behind him, and yet he prays. How should this impact us as we think about a prayer that Paul makes for this, this group of believers? Well, I want us to think about it this way. As we look at the prayer, uh, let's take it in three parts, and then we'll, we'll, we'll bring in the impact that it ought to have on us, okay? So the, the, the prayer for the Ephesians in three parts. The first uh, shows up in verses 15 and 16, and it's the prompt. Paul says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, dot, dot, dot. Okay, Paul says, uh, hey, you know, hey guys, I pray for you all the time. I give thanks for you all the time. And it's this, and, and if you've been following along, in the first part of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul celebrates this great salvation we have. 
in verses 3 through 14. Says, you know, here's this great salvation we've had. And then when I heard about your faith, that moved me. That was a trigger for me to pray because I was so encouraged by that. I'm thankful to God for your faith because you share in this great salvation. And I pray for you all the time. So I want you to think about it like this Paul isn't just somebody who just, you know, uh, gets out and works, he's a prayer. By the way, a lot of us do this. Okay, so one of the coolest things that you get to share in is if you get to see somebody, you know, uh, ignite with spiritual life, and then they start to grow in the faith, and you get to see what God is doing in that person's life, it moves you to pray. It moves you to celebrate how great and how good our God is. And, and, you know, how great is our salvation through Jesus? So it makes you thankful. It keeps you grateful. And a good question, you know, if, the, if what moves Paul here is that he hears about their faith and he, it just moves him to pray for them, that they'll grow in it even more, it moves him to celebrate. Here's a question for you. If you've been walking with Jesus for a while and you know God has called you to pour out your life for other people, whose spiritual life are you celebrating right now? Who is it you think about and you're grateful for them and you're praying for their best? We're, we're Americans. There are a lot of great things about our culture. <clears throat> but there's, a, there's an almost, out of our rugged individualism, there's almost a selfishness that some people can indulge in so that what we can do is so turn inward that we think about ourselves obsessively. So that even if we pray, we pray so focused on ourselves that we forget that God is doing a work among the nations and he's doing a work among your neighbors. Whose spiritual life are you celebrating? It's actually not good for you to be so inwardly focused. You're not wired that way. You're not at your best or your healthiest that way. Who is it, who is it that whenever you hear of their faith, you're prompted to pray and to praise God for them? So that's one, the prompt. He heard about their faith. The second thing is the direction. See this at the beginning of verse 17. He says, you know, I, I, I pray for you guys all the time that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you dot, dot, dot. So I'm asking God to give you something. Now keep in mind, that's what prayer is. Prayer is an appeal to somebody else. It's the opposite of an appeal inward, of, you know, of self-reliance. And so to pray is to make an appeal to somebody else, and that's what this apostle is doing. He turns, he turns to God. Now, this is a small point, it seems, right, in the greater scheme of things. It's almost assumed, but it's a critical one. Because you can find yourselves, you've been called to ministry, and you can find yourself busy in ministry, and lacking in prayer. Okay? Note the word give. Paul says, I'm praying to God that he can give you something. In other words, Paul's really talented. and Paul knows what he's doing. He wants to see them thrive spiritually. And so he prays for them. Right? Why doesn't Paul just do it himself? Why didn't, you know, he's been called by God. He's a super talented guy. Why doesn't, if they need something, why didn't Paul just do it? Well, here's why. Because what they need most, 
Paul doesn't have the ability to give them. So he turns to God and says, I'm asking that God would give you what you need the most. So the direction is not planning, it's not strategy. It's actually turning to God and asking, and asking God to do something that only God can do. So here's a question for you. Again, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you know you've been called into ministry, you know you've been called, I don't mean uh, prof, you know, quote-unquote professional ministry, you know you've been called by the Lord to pour yourself into other people. So here's the question. Um, am I looking up as well as in? Am I looking up as well as in? It's important, you know, yeah, metaphorically, it's important to look in. Right? Paul does this sometimes. We see other believers do this sometimes. It's important to look in in this sense to go like, uh, you know, I know God has called me, so how can I be the best steward of, of my gifting and these opportunities and how am I cultivating this? Uh, where, where should I be putting myself right now? Uh, Paul talked about how hard he worked, you know, how to give myself to this. That's looking in. But Beyond just looking in, are you looking up? As, as important as it is to look in, it's vital to look up. What people need the most is something that I don't have the ability to give them. That's why, you know, if you think about the framework of this, you know, an apostle is a messenger. He's somebody who's carrying somebody else's message, somebody who actually has the ability to do things. A preacher is a proclaimer. Right? He just, he's talking about, I'm just talking about what someone else, not me, has the ability to do. Are you looking up as well as in? As important as it is to look in, it's vital to look up. The direction, Paul turns to God. So he heard about their faith, that prompts him to pray. And he turns to God, and then finally is the content. This is the rest of the passage. The end of verse 17 all the way through 23. And, and it occurs in two parts, but I want you to pop down a couple of things before we take it in these two subparts. Is in verse 18, you'll notice this little phrase, he says, that you may know. So he prays that God will give them something that they may know, and then he gives three watts to frame it. W-H-A-T. And as he prays that, this, everything kind of hinges on this. What comes before and what comes after hinges on, I'm, I'm praying that God will give you something uh, that you may know something, like it's, like it's vital. And it seems as if part A, if, if you have part A, that produces part B. And that's why it's so important. He's like, I want God to give you this so that you'll actually know this, these other things that are so vital to you, okay? So if you've got part A, that produces part B, it seems. So let's look at part A. This is at the end of verse 17 and the beginning of verse 18. He prays that God will give them a knowledge of him. Particularly that the Spirit will. He says it this way at the, in verse 17. He says, I'm, I'm praying that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. A couple of insights here. I mean, the, the, what's key there, I'm praying that you'll know God. And a couple of insights here. Number one is that you won't know God if he does not make himself known to you. You cannot know God if he does not make himself known to you. There are a couple of problems here in the knowing God situation from the human vantage point. One is finitude, 
right? The, the infinite, invisible God is not going to be known in your finitude, right? So there are little markers that God has given us. But there's a deeper spiritual problem. In your sin, you're blinded by your sin. And that you can't know God unless God makes himself known and condescends. I mean, that condescend in the, in the right sense of the word. Jesus condescends, the God the Son condescends by becoming one of us to identify with us so that we can behold God, right? When, when Jesus talks to Philip, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. God is making himself known in creation that, that you're an image bearer in his word, but he's making himself most fully known in Jesus. But for you to know God, he's got to do an internal work in you and reveal that. So that's why Paul prays, again, just to, to be so Scripture-focused here. He says, I'm asking the Spirit to give you something. I'm asking God to give you something. And that is the Spirit of wisdom and revelation of what? Of Him. And that's the way the eyes of your heart become enlightened. That's the way you see what you have to see. If you're going to know God, it's because he's so gracious and good that he makes himself known to you. God is not a thing that is discoverable, as though the Magellan or the Columbus in you can find it. God has to actually pull back the veil. God has to actually bring you alive and open your eyes. So if you'll know God, it's because God makes himself known to you. The second insight here is it hinges on the word knowledge. Right, so that he'll say, I want you to have a knowledge of him, and then in verse 18, so that you can know uh, what we'll look at here in a bit. The knowledge here is relational and experiential. Let me try to, my best to explain this. So in, in Greek thought, normally the word knowledge, the way they would use it, would tend to be more abstract, technical. Okay? And in Hebrew thought, the idea of knowledge was more experiential or relational. So I can give you a couple of examples to help you see the distinction of it. Because one involves the other, um, or, or relational experiential knowledge often involves technical knowledge, but not necessarily the other way around. So let me ask you this question. I'm going to give you two examples. Example number one, um, do you know what salt is? And a good chemistry student, that excludes me right off the bat, a good chemistry student says, yes, I know what salt is. It's easy, right? It's a compound of two elements that you would see on the periodic table, sodium chloride, S-A-N-C-L, uh, N-A-C-L. I told you, I should have looked at my notes there. N-A-C-L, sodium chloride, right? So it's a compound of those two elements. Right? And it's derived from those, and whenever they're, that's, that's salt, N-A-C-L. That's the abstract. That's kind of the Greek idea. Now, if you ask me, do you know what salt is? I say, yeah. I use it on my fries all the time. I've tasted it, right? As a matter of fact, my doctor probably says I do too much, right? Paul means this one. He means the salt on your fries one. He means the experience of it, that you know what it's like, that you know personally firsthand. Not this idea, not just something that you would read of in a book, but you would never encounter it yourself. Or, here's example number two. Uh, I might say, as a rusty church historian, I know Jonathan Edwards. I've read a lot of his works. The most brilliant theological mind in 
in, in the U.S. or in, in America um, in history. So I could say, I've read about him, I've read his, his works, and I've, I've read his sermons, and that sort of thing. I know Jonathan Edwards. And me, the same guy, can say, I know my dad. Those mean two different things. And Paul means the know your dad kind of know here, okay? He means that when I think about my dad, I think about the man with whom I have this deep abiding connection. I have never imagined my life without him. Okay, I know my dad. He means this. I want you to have a knowledge of him, a know your dad kind of knowledge of him. I want a, a relationship where you've experienced the presence and, and a connection with God. That's the basic idea. And that's how you see the world around you. That's how the eyes of your heart are enlightened. So that's what he means, all right? So the first part of the content is that God will give him a knowledge of himself. But that knowledge is a relational, experiential knowledge. Okay? Let's get on to part B. Why does Paul do that? Paul prays that they'll know God so that, that's verse 18, They'll, they'll know these certain things, and, and there are three watts in it. Let me read uh, from the end of verse 18 all the way through so we can take it in, in one full uh, run, and then we're, we're going to break it down into three watts, but the biggest watt is the third watt, okay? And it's, it's clear as mud, right? We'll, we'll, I'll try to do better in just a moment. He says, I'm, I'm praying that you'll know God, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that's a rush to pray. I want you to know God personally, relationally, experientially, so that you'll know these three things. And they're framed by three watts. But the big one is the last one. The first one is God's call. He says in, in the beginning of verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. He said, this is the beginning of the Christian's life. You were nowhere. You were estranged from God. And God connected with you through Jesus, right? And he called you to himself so that you would have life and you would know that you have a future with him. It's the beginning of your Christian life. God's, God's calling. At the end of verse 18, it's God's inheritance. He wants you to know God's inheritance. And uh, he says, I want you to know what are the riches, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that God, is, God has set aside a future for you, uh, a, a life with you for eternity, and this is the Christian's eternity. Now, he handles these two watts uh, briefly. And I think he handles... God's call in your life, and God's inheritance briefly because in verses 3 through 14, he's already addressed those, you know, kind of a, a, a more full extent. But it's the last one that he emphasizes. The, the third thing that he wants the believer to know is God's power. And remember, this know is relational experiential. It's firsthand knowledge. He says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power 
at the beginning of verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power. As we read it, he wants you to know God so that you'll know his power in your life. There are three things that stand out about this. Three things I want you to observe. Number one, uh, this only describes, the beginning of uh, verse 19, this only describes someone who believes. God's immeasurably great power toward us who believe. So somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus, this doesn't describe them at all. But if you believe in Jesus, this accurately describes you. Every word of it applies to you if you believe in Jesus. Right? This is about somebody who believes in Jesus. God's power at work in you, if you believe in Jesus, is, is something that by his grace has occurred and is occurring and will occur. The second insight is uh, also in verse 19. God's power to you, toward you, is greater than anything you can even try to measure. You just don't have the capability. We don't have the instruments. We can't even guess. You know how like between data, uh, you know, sometimes we can take data on something and we can sort of guess a ballpark range of what it might be. He talks about how um, uh, immeasurably great God's power is toward you. So in other words, God is operating powerfully in your life and he says it's great. And like a kid, you go, well, how great is it? And he says, it's so great, it's so powerful, that we have, he never runs out of resource. We don't even have a way to measure it. It's impossible for us to even conceive of it. So it's not like, you know, the little engine that could. Um, if you read that as a child, or you, you know, I think I can. You remember that little engine that could? He had to get up the hill. And so as I think I can, I think I can, and, you know, I, I can. And he does it, right? Barely. God is the God who easily can. There's there's never a limit. There's never a strain. Uh, We don't have the instruments to guess how much because it never runs out. He is omnipotent. He has all power. And so his power operating in your life doesn't have a limit. It's never going to come up against something that it can't address. Never loses energy. Okay, so one, it applies to you as a believer. Two, it can't be measured. And three, and this is stunning, God's power at work in you, toward you, is the exact same power at work in Christ. That's how he says it at the end of verse 19 and then the beginning of 20. His power toward us according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. And then that's when he goes into the, his sweeping uh, explanation of that. You remember Christ, right? Right, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What he's saying is that power is the exact same power at work in you. The power at work in Jesus resurrected him from the dead. The power at work in Jesus exalted him to glory. And the power at work in Jesus positioned him to reign over everything so that the full dominion God intended man to enjoy is now exercised by Christ. And Jesus inspires and powers his church just like he does everything in the universe that he upholds at large by the power of his word. 
That same power is at work in you. It's a stunning revelation that he wants them to know as minorities operating fragilely in the world that the, infinite, that, that the infinite power of God is a force personally at work in their lives. And as they think about the great thing that God impossibly did through Jesus, he's like, yeah, that power, that power is the exact same power at work in you. I want you to know God personally so that you'll appropriate all of this. I want you to pause for a moment. Paul describes such a dynamic, powerful faith. Having said that, again, here's where uh, being American can hit us. Notice this. Paul doesn't ask that they will get something new. Paul doesn't ask that they will get something new. You want to know why? Because they've already received every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. He's asking that they'll appropriate and experience what they already have. What more, let me ask you this, what more could Jesus do for you? What greater commitment, what kind of uh, greater act, what greater efficacy, what greater power could God offer you? And what you already have declared from first to last, before the foundation of the world, God set his heart on you. Right? You too, when it comes to substance, you don't need something new from God. You might need to change, you might need to do something new, but you need to get a hold of what he's already given you. So the impact, remember I said we ought to frame it this way, and see in real time this apostle, as talented as he is and all this stuff, prays for them and he prays this prayer. He prays that, you know, he hears about their faith, he turns to God, and he prays that they'll know God so that they'll be able to appropriate God's, appreciate God's work in them. How does this impact you? It impacts you, one, as a believer, somebody who lives for Jesus. And it impacts you also as somebody, a believer, who's called to minister to other people. Okay, so let me give you, um, for application, uh, two kind of things to do. Two questions for reflection, and then uh, two questions for practice. Something to think about, something to do. Okay? So for reflection, two questions, briefly. Number one, why pray? Right? Why pray? Obvious as this may seem, I mean, we ought to look at the text, right? We're people of the book, and Paul says he prays for them all the time. All the time. Why pray? You're gifted, but you're not that gifted. That's why. Okay, Paul was uber gifted. He worked hard for sure. There's a place where he says, I worked harder than anybody else. I mean, he loved these people. He wanted to see them grow. Uh, He had things to do. He did. But he also prayed. I pray because as talented as I may be, people need something that only God can give them. Right? I mean, what they need is a spiritual resurrection and a future resurrection. You know, newsflash, I don't have the ability to make that happen. All I can do is announce the good news and point the way and ask God to do something in that person's life that only God can do from first to last, you know, fueled by grace uh, through what Jesus has done. Why pray? Because I can't give that to them, but God can, and God is willing. If you love somebody and you really see their needs, you're going to be moved to pray because you're going to realize just how limited you are when it comes to really addressing what they need. It's a great privilege to be used by God, 
Um, but the reality is if God doesn't cause the growth, there is no growth. If God doesn't bring life, there is no life. Why pray? Because only God can do what has to be done. Second thing, why know? Right? Why, why this knowing thing, this knowledge thing, this fixation on it? He says, I'm praying that you'll know God, verse 18, that you may know all of these great things that God is doing in you. What's Paul driving at here? He's praying that they'll know God and his work in their lives like this is the thing that makes all the difference. Because in your present experience, it makes all the difference. Knowing does that. If you know it, you'll live it. Here's the, the handout part. You, you, you live what you know. Right? So it better be true. You, you live out of what you truly know. Not living for Jesus is a knowing problem. And I mean that in the abstraction and in the relational experiential. Right? Not, not living for Jesus. Like, like where you draw those lines and you say, I'm not going to follow Jesus here. Even though, you know, like the preacher guy says it and he's got a good reason because it's right there in the book. But that's just not who I am. Where you do that, that's a knowing problem. Right? That's, that's, you not, that's you pushing what God has said and revealed out of, out of the way so that you won't be interrupted or inconvenienced by what he said. That's a disregard of his authority. That's a knowing problem. Right? If you know it, you'll live in and this kind of knowledge brings clarity and confidence. When, when people so often want to know, what do I, you know, where do I go from here? How do I decide? Listen, um, if you're clear on who you are and who God is, you get clear on how to navigate the world in which we live. You get confident on what to do regardless of the, the price. It's the only way to navigate the fog of war in a world hostile to Christ. If you don't know God and what he's doing in you, then you won't know what you're doing in the world. All right, so for reflection, why, why pray and why know? Uh, second, for practice. Two questions for you. Put into practice. Number one, who are you praying for? We ask that right up front, right? Paul says, hey, I heard about your faith, and I, now I pray for you all the time. I'm really grateful for what you're doing. You get to see whenever you pray for other people, uh, what, not what you can do, but you get to see what only God can do in that person's life. Where, 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 you need, uh, where, where you know that what that person needs is something that only God can give them. And if you minister long enough, as a matter of fact, if you love people long enough, you're going to have that experience where you look at somebody and you go, they're beyond what I can give them. So who are you praying for? And whose spiritual life are you celebrating? Right? You get to see the work of God when you do that. You also get to grow in some humility. Where, Listen, I, I mean, it's cool when God uses you and uh, you do something and there's really big impact. But there is a little bit of a temptation to kind of go, I'm a big deal. Right? Did you see what I did? You need this kind of thing so that you look at it and you go, Man, this person is without hope unless God steps in and intervenes. And, uh, you know, you probably, if you have somebody you love and they seem beyond your help because they are, um, sometimes you step back and you remind yourself, this person I love has no idea who they're messing with because I'm praying to God. Um, who are you praying for? Number two, what are you praying for? What are you praying for? 
We, so listen, I don't know if it's groups outside of Baptist, but Baptists pray for physical health a lot. You know, I mean, you know, people's knees get hurt and their hips go out and, you know, we get bad diagnoses and all that stuff, right? And so we pray for that. And that's important. I'm, I personally, I'm incredibly grateful for the people who prayed for my physical health. I, like, I cannot thank you enough. But let's call that answer. And God answered your prayer, okay? I mean, you know, not that it's, it's still stunning to me every once in a while to look and go, you know, about two months ago, uh, People in the medical profession were talking to my wife and me and saying, what you have is life-threatening, sort of shrugging their shoulders. I am here. I am so thankful. So many of you prayed. I'm really, really grateful. But can we call that answered prayer sort of a stay? I mean, because death is going to happen. Right? Right? So as important as that is, and as good as that is, and as much as I appreciate it, let's pray like Paul too. Right? We pray that people uh, we love will know God and what he does in a person's life. Uh, a call to hope, an inheritance that's set aside, an immeasurably great power at work in them, the exact same power at work in Christ Jesus. That's what I want for you. Uh, it's, I, 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 want, I want you to come to Christ so that all of this will be true for you. I'll even pray for it. All right, let's pray. Father, what a great gift that you don't hold uh, back your power, your goodness. We see it on full display so much that whenever we think about your grace to us uh, through what Jesus has done and the operation of the Holy Spirit, we just can't measure it. This infinite power at work in us. You're so good and so powerful. There is no force um, that can overcome you. And so what we pray is that, that we'll know, be first-handers, that power and that good hope so that we'll live with clarity in the world and that Jesus will shine brightly in our lives. And we also pray for people we love who don't know you, who seem to be, they don't even know what they need. And we ask that you would do what only you could do in those people's lives so that they'll know Jesus and they'll know this great hope. And we pray for our friends here in this room who are considering Jesus, um, that by your spirit, you would make yourself known to them so that the eyes of their hearts will be enlightened and that they'll cherish this hope alongside of us. You're a great and gracious God, and we celebrate you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.